Hey, Kingdom Real Estate Investors, we got another special episode for you today. This is actually an interview I did with Jordan Rayner, who is a best-selling author of Call to Create and, and most uh, recently something called Redeeming Your Time. And I just love Jordan to death. We always have an amazing time together. And, and he uh, just has an incredible vision to serve Christians in the marketplace. And everything he does, from the books he writes to the content he puts out, is really uh, geared towards that mission. And, and we get into some really amazing topics about how Jesus used his time and how Jesus multiplied his time here on earth and, and what that means for us as Christians in the marketplace. And so I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. Uh, let's get into it. Six years ago, Ellis Hammond's entire mission changed. He was a full-time college pastor with vision and passion, but broke. Now a full-time real estate entrepreneur, Ellis is the founder of Kingdom Real Estate Investors, the number one community for faith-driven leaders impacting the world through real estate investing. If you're a kingdom-minded real estate investor or entrepreneur seeking to advance God's kingdom outside the church walls, welcome to the Kingdom REI podcast where Ellis interviews Christian entrepreneurs and investors focused on advancing God's kingdom through real estate investing. Enjoy the show. If we have not met, my name is Ellis Hammond. I am the founder of Kingdom Real Estate Investors. I am a full-time real estate investor myself. Three years ago, I was a full-time college pastor. Started getting into real estate because there was a real need and desire for us to figure out how to build wealth, create capital, for the things that we were passionate about. And also, we also were just broke. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the things coming into this is like, it was just, there, where were the Christians? Who were the people talking about wealth and building wealth and creating income and becoming financially free so that we could, you know, better steward our time and better steward our resources. And so at King Mark, I was just birthed out of honestly, like a curiosity of, of, who else is out there and what can we build together? But without further ado, we're going to talk more. I want to make sure we only got limited time with one of my favorite people literally on the planet today. Uh, when I was a young missionary, green in business, everyone was telling me like, you know, what do you mean you're going into business? Like you're supposed to serve God. You're supposed to be a missionary. Like God has a calling on your life. You're supposed to be in ministry. I'm like, well... I want to be an entrepreneur. Like, I don't know how to balance this. Like, I, I, I do still want to serve God, but I feel like I, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, I want to build things. I want to create things. And I just didn't know, like, there wasn't a lot of good training. There wasn't a lot of good books. At least I, there are probably more now. I just didn't know them back then. And so one of the guys that I stumbled upon was Mr. Jordan Rayner. And one of his early books called Called to Create, uh, one of my absolute you know, number one recommendation in terms of if you're trying to figure out how we reflect God and live for God in light of business in the marketplace, uh, guys, look no further. And, and Jordan Rayner, uh, a guy that I've got to interview and become friends with over the last several years now. And uh, and so I am excited to talk about all that he's doing and for you to get a chance to really listen and hear uh, from him and his heart. So uh, without further ado, welcome, Jordan. Ellis, it's great to be with you, man. I always love hanging out together. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, first thing that sticks out, everybody, is the guy likes yellow books. So if you don't know that about him. <laughs> Big fan of yellow. Big the the only yellow. interesting, though, and so um, if you're part of our mastermind, you're going to get some really cool books at our ne next event. 
If you're not part of our mastermind, though, go look this guy up. Call to Create, Master of One. We're going to talk about another one of his books today that recently came out. But, dude, what's this? Oh, man, this is the book. This is the book. Uh, this is my first children's book called The Creator in You. And, you know, you, you mentioned Call to Create, this book that I published almost five years ago now. And the, 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 core, the core message of Call to Create is that before God told us that he is holy or loving or omnipotent, he tells us that he's a God who creates things. I would argue God's the first entrepreneur, right? And that has radical implications for how we think about the dignity of work that we do in business outside the four walls of the church. Hmm. And when I was writing Call to Create, Let's see, I, I published it in 2017. So we had just had my first kid a couple of years ago, just had my second. And as I was writing, I was like, man, at some point in time, I've got to put this into a tight little package for my kids to understand. Because I grew up for 30 years having no concept that my work as an entrepreneur mattered to God. And so by God's grace, the result of that seed God planted in my heart is that book you hold in your hands and 385 words, helping kids see that we worship a creative working God who left creation largely unfinished on the sixth day. You know, I think a lot of times when we preach about Genesis 1, we treat the sixth day of creation, however you want to interpret day, as the end of creation when in fact the sixth day was just the beginning right? It's, as I say in the book, it's when God made us to look like him, to act and work and create with him. Because while in six days, God created a lot. There are so many things that he simply did not like bridges and baseball, sandcastles and s'mores. God asked us to create and fill the planet with more. And when you really dig into the Hebrew text of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it's crystal clear that the first commission that God put on humankind was not just to procreate, not just to make a lot of babies, but to make culture, right? To take the garden and steward it into something much, much more for God's glory and the good of others. And that's the heart of this book. Man, I love there's, I love a lot about this book. Uh, and just if you guys, so go get this on Amazon, like this is where the book, get it right. Uh, is that the best place? Yeah, wherever you want. Amazon, Amazon yep. Yeah. Target, Walmart. So, Walmart. But, but listen to this, guys. I just love this. It says, think about this. Like, think about you start to instill this in your kids of like what it means to create and be an entrepreneur. He says, so before before his day off, God had one more to do. On a sixth day of creating, God chose to make you. And now you might think that our story is ending, but in fact, that is just the beginning. God made you to look like him, to act and work and create with him. And then two pages later, I love this line, man. I like for my little daughter, like yeah. helping her realize like her entrepreneurial, you know, her ambition is of the Lord because I, I think that gets squandered of like, you know, so much. So to, to elevate that calling, you say, so grab a blank sheet of paper and create with your hands or draw up some plans for a lemonade stand. <laughs> so guys, like I'm so pumped about this book. I'm so excited that Ruthie, my daughter, uh, gets the opportunity to grow up with stuff like this and, and for us to celebrate in our home what it means to create, um, you know, and to turn ideas into profitable companies that then can go and serve the world or at the very least, give people fresh lemonade. So there you go. Um, exactly. Yeah, man. So uh, make sure you guys do that, everyone. So let's. I want to. Uh, we've prepared some stuff for today. 
you come from a pastoral background. Yes. You leave to go do business, right? Yep. And you get all these quizzical looks that all of us who have always worked outside the church have gotten our entire lives of how in the world could your work as an investor, your work in real estate, your work as an entrepreneur be ministry. And it's part of the reason why I wrote this children's book, The Creator and You, because it reminds us that the Great Commission, important as it is, is not the first commission. The first thing God asked humankind to do was to fill the earth, subdue the earth with culture to create in his image. And oh, by the way, God never once retracted the first commission. I think a lot of times we think, oh, well, after human beings sinned, the only thing that matters is saving souls and getting us all out of this godforsaken planet. That's not the story of scripture. Nowhere in scripture does God say, hey, remember what I said about filling the earth with culture? Scratch that. And look at Genesis 9. Take Noah. After the flood, what does God tell Noah and his sons? Be fruitful and fill the earth. Create, again, the first commission is still a part of the charge of the church, but it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's been overshadowed by our near myopic focus on the Great Commission. And I think the, the irony of this is, in all likelihood, it's going to be through our kids re-embracing the First Commission that we're the most effective at the Great Commission in this next generation. Why? Because we have the largest number of people on record with no religious affiliation. Our kids' friends that they go to school with and go to college with and go to work with, they're not going to be walking into the doors of a church to learn about Jesus the first time. So how are they going to do it? Through culture, through films made in the mainstream that show redemptive themes, through working alongside other believers in their places of work. That's how it's going to happen. Yep. Right. Yep. But to see it, we got to start telling our kids really early on that, yes, God's called them to make disciples, but he's also called them to make culture and make more of the world. And it's by doing the latter that we're going to be the most successful at the former. Yeah, man. We just always started yesterday with, with saying um, it's time for Christians to really take a stand. I think, I think what, so, and I talked to many Christians and, you know, people have asked, Alice, can I come on your podcast? I'm like, well, do you love the Lord? And most of them will say, well, yes. I'm like, well, will you stand for the Lord? Like, will you, will you be open about loving the Lord? And most of them will say, and then people will be like, well, you know, I just, I'm not, I, I, you know, a lot of my folks aren't Christians and like, and then, well, I don't want to say something and, and then upset people or not agree with people. And then, you know, they're all, everyone's worried about getting canceled. And what we said yesterday, Jordan is like, there, there's a minority of people in the world that want to stand for nothing, right? There's also a minority of the world that want to stand for everything. And I think that's what we think that we think that is bigger than it is. It's loud. It's probably the loudest, but it's still minority. I think there's still a majority of folks, Christian or non-Christian, that want to see and respect people who stand for something. Yeah. And I Mitch. think that's right. And because we know standing for nothing is a failing formula and standing for everything will eventually show itself to be a disastrous formula um, because it is so, you know, as you, you, you and I love Tim Keller, you, you said his name earlier. I mean, he talks about this, right? Of like you, it's incongruent to stand for everything. It's impossible. It, it doesn't for everything make sense. is standing for nothing at the end of the yeah. day. If you follow that <laughs> logical trail, right? So right. no, we need more Christ followers in every square inch of culture. 
standing up for the gospel. And that does, I'm not saying that means make, make all the T's in your logos crosses. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, I think that's counterproductive most times. What I'm talking about is looking at the core values of the kingdom of God, the core values of cultural excellence and love and justice and beauty and deeply ingraining them through every aspect of the enterprise so that we could spread the aroma of Christ. Right. And then what, and then to, to second to absolutely hundred percent, we have to create it to be the best. And then when we get there to not shy away from Jesus, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, why are you doing this? Because of the kingdom, I wanted to come here on earth, right? I mean, and so I think that that's where I'm saying is like, to your point, we got to be the best. We got to create, we got to, we got to cultivate, we have to inspire, um, and then not shy away because now, now the cold world's looking at us. Hello. Why do you think we're looking at you guys giving us you that, giving us that platform? Exactly. There's two ditches. I see a lot of people fall into here. The first ditch is we feel like we always have to leverage our work to the instrumental end of proclaiming Jesus's name. And that if we don't, our good works are incomplete. I I don't see any evidence for that in scripture, right? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, period, full stop. Not love your neighbor as yourself so that you can win every opportunity you can to tell them about me. So that's the first ditch. Always thinking we have to leverage our work to the instrumental end of the Great Commission. The other ditch is never leveraging our work to the instrumental end of proclaiming Jesus's name. And I think that's the greater temptation, right? Of, oh, we're just going to do excellent work and and pray that people figure out on their own that it's because of Jesus that we do it. Yeah, There's that St. Francis Assisi quote that's total nonsense. It says, um, uh, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. That's absurd. At, at some point, you have to use words to explicitly point people to the one true king of this world. So we got to find a way to stay in the middle of that road. Stay out of those two gutters. Mm-hmm. Um, embrace our work as intrinsically valuable to God simply because it's what he made us to do in the beginning in the first commission, but also not fall in the other ditch of never giving a reason for the hope that's within us. Yeah. Amazing. Guys, we haven't got started yet. Jordan and I are just catching up because we haven't (laughs) talked in eight months. (laughs) Oh man. Seriously. If you guys don't know who this guy is, he's got a great podcast show. Uh, The show, the podcast is master of one, right? Jordan. We actually changed the name. We it's the same podcast, same show, but we we call it the Mere Christians Podcast. Blatant steal from Lewis. Uh, basically, the gist is uh, we are talking about how the gospel shapes not the work of pastors or missionaries. That's not interesting. How does the gospel shape the work of mere Christians? Mm-hmm. Those of us working as real estate investors and entrepreneurs and baristas and stay-at-home parents. And so we have some incredible people. On Tony Dungy was just on. I'm interviewing Tim Keller later today to talk about how the gospel should shape the work of mere Christians. And uh, yeah, we, we're having a lot of fun with the show. I love it, man. Hey, let me ask you real quick. For, <laughs> are you work, like in your head? I mean, guys, I just love Jordan. I, I want him to create so much. Are you working on a a world, a story? Like, you know what I'm saying? Tolkien, right, I've been asked this Lewis. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, right. Do you have a story? Do you have a world in your head? All right, so I don't read any fiction. Narnia is the extent of my fiction and Lewis's space trilogy. That's about it. I would love to do it. I would love to create a world because I I think story, um, I think story can awaken our hearts to truths 
that nonfiction just can't really get at. I, I think stories are more powerful vehicle. I'm not the guy to do it though. I'm praying that people will read my books, my nonfiction books, and then go create these other worlds and make yeah. great acts of fiction. I'm not the guy to do it. I don't yeah. know the first thing about fiction. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just wanted to ask. <laughs> I really want to kind of go off this theme of time. You know, we are investors. Right. We talk about creating capital and we also talk a lot about we don't talk about enough about time and creating time. Um, and so that's kind of the theme and the, the way I want to, I want to go down. I want to start with this man, because I, I love when we talk about this idea together of goal setting and, and creation of goals and thinking yeah. about epic goals. And so you, yeah. I've always enjoyed how you've made the case of why Christians should set epic goals. Yeah. And so my question is, well, one, like, why is that important? And you consistently bring that up. And then, how do we how do we set epic goals like kind of walk us through that if you're sitting there mentoring a group of kingdom mind entrepreneurs yeah. and you know who probably have their whole life been told to think small yeah what do you say to them yeah let's start with the why and then bring me back to the how here in a second ellis so um i, I wrote a book last year called redeeming your time where i outlined five reasons why christ followers ought to be marked by the biggest goals on the planet let me give you let me give you just three of them, the three that are most significant to me. Okay. Number one, in my experience, big goals are actually easier to achieve than small goals. Right. Everybody sets small average size goals. So the paradox is that as the size of your goal increases, the level of competition actually decreases. I saw this firsthand when I was in college. I was a public relations student at Florida State University, the Florida State University. <laughs> And uh, as a part of our program, we had to do an internship, right? Small program, 40 kids in this program. And guess what? My 39 colleagues in that program all competed over the same five internships available at local, you know, PR agencies in Tallahassee. I was bold enough, some might say arrogant enough to say, screw that. I'm going to go get an internship at the White House. And by God's grace alone, I had no business getting an internship at the White House, but by God's grace alone, I did. And when I showed up, I thought, man, um, these fellow interns are going to be so much more impressive than my colleagues at Florida State, so much smarter. And they were none of those things. In fact, the opposite was true in a lot of cases. But what they had was audacity. Mm -hmm. What they had was bigger goals. And the irony was that bigger goal was easier to achieve than the smaller one. Mm -hmm. Here's the second reason why Christ followers should set bigger goals. Big goals make it easier for us to say no. Anytime an executive, an entrepreneur comes to me and says, Jordan, I can't stop saying yes to things. I, I have such a hard time saying no. I think that's all of us. My first question is, what is the big, hairy, wildly inspiring, audacious goal that you're setting for your work? And nine times out of 10, they don't have one. Because if you don't have that, if you don't have a burning yes, Something that is so big, so inspiring that you simply have to say no, you simply want to say no to everything else, you are inevitably going to get sucked into the thick of thin things. Mm -hmm. Here's the last reason, and this one's unique for Christ followers. So good, man. It's impossible for us to fail ultimately, mm -hmm. right? Secular people know this. Larry Page talks about this at Google. He said, this is the thing people don't get about 10x thinking. If you set a goal that's 10x bigger than the one you have today, 
even if you fail, you're going to make significantly more progress than if you had stuck with your average size goal. And for Christ followers, we know that even if we strike out entirely, we make no progress towards that big goal, which isn't going to happen. At the end of the day, we still have Christ Mm. who saved us when we were his enemy. And if that's true, we know there's no way we can lose our salvation. There's no way we can lose our communion with the Lord because he doesn't need us to be productive. He wants us to, and we want to as a response of worship, but he doesn't need me to do anything in my businesses. As, as he says in Job 42, God says in Job 42, his purposes will never, ever be thwarted. And that should allow us to take the biggest swings on the planet. So I love that, man. You can't lose, right? Like you're going to be so much farther anyways. And we're partnering with God. What I think what's challenging about that though, and even if I, moment of confession, I, I am a big goal setter. Yet, Jordan and I, I'm also, and I'm a hard worker. So I set big goals. And yet though, it feels like a significant amount of the time, I feel anxious as I'm pursuing those goals. I'm stressed. So I'm like, I, I'm a big thinker. I want to go do great things. I understand like ultimately I can't lose. Yet in the midst of it, like there's anxiety and there's stress and there's pressure. And I feel like I'm working out of my own strength. And so how how do you how do you reconcile this big thing, big goal? Let's go accomplish something great. And yet not like the world that that just produces anxiety and stress and you're overcome by fear and worry, right? Oh man, such a good question. So a few thoughts. Number one, some level of stress and anxiety is inevitable in a post-fall world. Mm-hmm. Until Jesus returns and fully consummates his kingdom, uh, there's always going to be some level of stress and anxiety. But Ellis, you're right. As Christ followers, we should be set apart by our non-anxious presence, our non-anxious, non-frantic, non-hurried pursuit of those big, hairy, audacious goals. So I would say this, if your goals are so big to where it's causing you to be a poor reflection of Christ, your goal actually might be too big, right? We are called to be faithful representatives of our King. And so if the goal is the source of that anxiety and stress, Mm. it's actually probably time to take that goal down a notch, right? Which is a rare problem, but it is a problem. Here's what else I would say. Even if you don't think the goal is the problem itself, right? You're like, no, that's not it. The goal is fine. It's me. Man, I think it is really an issue. And this this was me in a different season of my career. Um, It's an issue of not taking the time to preach the gospel to myself on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Through time in the word, but I think, I think, Maybe equally importantly, if I can say that, through rest. Because to, to rest, whether it's weekly Sabbath or fighting to get an eight-hour sleep opportunity every night or taking breaks throughout my day, rest is an act of faith for Christ followers. When I take a day off a week, that's a big deal. I know other entrepreneurs that I'm competing against aren't doing that. It is an act of faith. It's an act of trust. And it's a way of reminding myself that God's way is better. Mm. It's a way of reminding myself that I have intrinsic value as a child of God that's irrespective of my productivity. And I honestly think that that practice, specifically Sabbath and also getting great sleep for the last six, six-ish years, 
has been a big key to me being able to chase over insanely big goals in a non-anxious, hopefully more Christ-like way. Do you do like do you know like do you're a sleep hacker? Like, do you have like a a, a cool bed or like an aura ring or anything like that? <laughs> no, yeah, it's so funny. So there's a whole chapter in my book, Redeeming Your Time, about embracing productive rest. Right. And I tell the story in here. I, I talk about how my wife and I, with young kids, get eight hours of sleep a night, roughly. And I mentioned in there, there was this article a friend sent me for the Wall Street Journal while I was writing this chapter about all these creative sleep hacks, rings, uh, cool and stuff. There was like a $1,500 Louis Vuitton sleep mask. I'm like, this is absurd. Talk to any sleep specialist. In fact, I, ha I had one on my podcast a while back. His name's Dr. Benjamin Long. He said, here's the deal. You want to get better sleep? I'll give you the simplest hack in the world. Set a consistent bedtime. Yeah, that's good. Almost all of us have a consistent time that we're awake in the morning. So this is real simple math. If you want to get eight hours of sleep and your wake up time is consistent, your bedtime's got to be consistent. But that's not the case for so many people. This was me for a long time. I'd be like, oh, I go to bed, you know, between nine and 11, depending on what's on TV. That's asinine. If, if you're truly committed to getting eight hours of sleep, not six, not seven, all the science says it's eight, right? You got to set a consistent bedtime. It's free. It's easy to do. It's insanely hard to execute, right? And there's a lot of work to do it, but it's actually quite a simple solution that is the solution for most people. That's good, man. That's good. I still think that aura ring out there is pretty cool, though. Oh, I've been kind of looking awesome. at it, man. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty dope. Uh, my, my friend um, Mark Batterson and I did a podcast together called Redeem the Day on our kind of complimentary time management books. And there's like a three minute rant of Mark just talking about his aura ring. Really? He's a huge fan. <laughs> affiliate link below. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I might. Yeah. We might. Kingdom RM might have its own affiliate link here uh, in the next little bit. Um, so here's, I want to, I want to talk about one more person and then open it up to our community who might have some questions. So guys, if you're on zoom, uh, you're part of our mastermind. I want to give you a chance to meet Jordan and, and ask some questions as well. I've had the chance to interview him several times. But the one thing I also always really enjoy talking to you about and love your continuous growth and learning of Jesus himself. Like what have you learned late? Like maybe it's the last time we chatted, but as you look and study and understand the person of Jesus, you know, he had the mind, like he has the, the mind of God. He had the spirit, the Holy Spirit, connection with the Holy Spirit, unlike anyone else. He knew the Father intimately. Like how does he think about time? How did he, how does he see time that can help us you know we always hear like time is a limited resource and I, in some ways i agree in some ways i'm like kind of use it as an excuse like well how did how do you think jesus views and sees time and how does that help us as entrepreneurs yeah so this is the crux of redeeming your time i had read before writing this book I, i've always been a time management productivity nerd i've read all of the books in the category all of the perennial bestsellers and one day it dawned on me that I had never read a book that accounted for how the author of time managed his time when he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, which means that he had to steward the exact same 24-hour day that you and I steward today. And we don't have to wonder how he manages time. There are four biographies 
on the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, we don't think about the Gospels as biographies. We think of them exclusively as sources of theology and ethics, but they're also biographies of how the most productive person who ever walked the earth lived. And so that's kind of how I wrote Redeeming Your Time. I said, all right, let's look at the gospel biographies. How does Jesus think about stewarding a 24-hour day? And I think you see seven principles through which he stewarded his time. I'll run through them very, very quickly. Number one, Jesus started with the word. He started with time with the Father and prioritized that over everything else. Number two, Jesus commanded that our yes be yes that we fulfill every commitment we make, big and small, we can assume that he did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Number three, Jesus, and this may be the most obvious thing in the gospel biographies, Jesus was great at dissenting from the kingdom of noise. He spent an absurd amount of time in solitary places, the gospels call them, lonely places, i.e. times of solitude where he could think and be creative and listen to the voice of God. Number four, Jesus prioritized his yeses. He didn't say yes to everything. Contrary to our caricature of Jesus as a nice guy who always said yes, Jesus said no a few times in the Gospels. He said yes sacrificially, but he also said no. Principle five, Jesus accepted his unipresence. For 33 years, Jesus traded his godly omnipresence, the ability to be everywhere at the same time for the human unipresence you and I experience today. He was fully focused a lot of the times in the Gospels. Principle number six, Jesus embraced productive rest, offering restorative breaks to his disciples throughout their workdays. Jesus fought for sleep. Jesus observed the Sabbath. And then finally, principle number seven, which I borrowed from my friend John Mark Comer, Jesus eliminated all hurry. He was crazy busy, right? Crazy productive. One time his parent, it says in the gospels, his family grabbed him because he was quote, out of his mind and quote, busy. But Jesus was never so busy that you see him frantic or anxious like you and I, Ellis, can struggle with or snapping at other people in his life. And I think that's the line between busy and hurry. Remember, I, told, I still have not re- yet read that book only because I just don't like the title. You know, I know, I, I know a um, lot of people don't. And so I think some several folks in our mastermind are reading it. And they're probably going to try and convince me to read it with them. So I probably will. But uh, I remember us talking about that. But I do think I think what's become more clear to me, though, since our last conversation. Yeah. Part of it is I do like I probably live my life in a hurry and there's probably some conviction I don't want to feel yet. So but I do think what I've appreciated and I heard Tim Tebow say this last weekend um, when he was speaking is. And I see this in the life of Christ. He might have not been in a hurry, but he was living his life with urgency because yes. he knew his calling was not about him, it was about other people. When your calling yes. was about other people, you live on their time frame, not your own time frame. Yes. 100%. You don't know what their time frame is. And so you better live life with urgency. And so I do think that's a big difference. And it doesn't mean we just sit back and don't do anything. It's that we live our life with urgency and focus. And because when we're focused and we know our calling and our purpose, to your point, we don't have to go speak at that conference over there. We don't have to go join that group. And it's like, and that honestly, this, this even this year, I'm like, realize there's so many things I've said no to because I'm like, it just doesn't serve me right now. Would it be cool? Yeah. Would it help me and my name probably get out there a little bit more? Yeah. But is that really what I need to do right now for me to truly live out my calling and grow what I need to grow? Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. And that's about prioritizing your yeses. And I'll say this once you're clear on your yes, once you're clear on the things that you believe God's called you to do in this season, the natural implication of that is Ephesians 5, 16, 
where Paul commands in response to the gospel that we be people who redeem the time because the days are evil. In other words, we're running out of time to do the work God has called us to do. Now, if I die tomorrow, God's going to finish that work with or without me. I'm not special, neither are you, right? But I'm running out of time to participate in the blessing of partnering with God and his kingdom building project. Mm -hmm. I just literally this morning got in the mail. Uh, I I designed my own Nike shoe for the first time. I don't spend money ever. I did this. I was like, I want to do it. And I designed it in the colors of redeeming your time. And I customized yellow. They're yellow. They're red. They're awesome. I look like Ronald McDonald running around my neighborhood. But I put in there, uh, R-O-O-T, running out of time. And my wife's like, that's so dumb. You're so lame. I'm like, no, no, no. I want a visible reminder that I'm running out of time to do the work I think God's called me to do. And I want that to motivate me to have great urgency to do as much good works as I can for my kids, for my spouse, and for the world I'm called to serve. That hits differently, man. In a non-frantic way. In a non-hurried way. A life-giving, peaceful, Jesus-like way. Mm. I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time. So are you. Get to it. <laughs> that hits, man. That hits. That, that's an that's emotional hit right there. I mean, that's the spirit of God working right there. Hey, just because the show's over doesn't mean the journey is... Listen, if you're a faith-driven real estate professional or investor, then you'll want to go to thekingdomrei.com to learn about our mastermind. If you're interested in investing alongside me in alternative investments like multifamily apartment complexes, then head to ellishammond.com to learn more about that. Cheers. Cheers.